It's Monday, June 30th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Over the weekend, the Libyan conspirator accused of the attacks on Benghazi arrived in the U.S., was charged with one count, conspiracy to provide material support to terrorism. But didn't we capture this guy like two weeks ago? What took him so long to get here? After two weeks of interrogation on a slow boat. They keep saying slow boat like it's a thing, like it's an institution. Yeah, it's a Miranda sidestepping thing. Was the boat the USSS constitutional avoidance? Hey, listen, I am not really up in arms that they took the long way around the Cape of No Hope to get this guy to the USA. If they got some good information out of him, fine. I do not think it's a case of first they came for Ahmed Abdul Katala and then they came for, well, that's it. They just came for Ahmed Abdul Katala. But the workaround, this slow boat, it's just a little weird, right? Either we have rights or we don't. Either we give the accused rights or we don't. I cannot believe that the frame of the Constitution. All right, they definitely weren't thinking about slow boats, although there were attacks on Libya by pirates, so maybe they were. But anyway, would anyone really that committed to the Constitution be very comfortable with nullifying it with the same set of rules that are used to govern Cincinnati's floating casino? And then I started thinking about the slow boat. And remember 2004, John Kerry running for president? He got swift boated. The swift boat veterans for truth got in between John Kerry and the White House, maybe a little bit. So here's how it works. When we swift boat someone, we say he lacks the ability to uphold the Constitution. When we slow boat someone, it's so we have the ability to say, hold up with that their Constitution. On the show today and in the spiel, my latest hobby horse. Or is it my lobby horse? No, it's a hobby lobby horse. And World Cup soccer, oh, the U.S. is poised to advance or die trying or act like they're dying trying. We'll get into all the flop stats. We'll have the floppitative analysis, all of it that you can handle. But now, you say import, I say export. You say export, I say import. The bank of that name might be going down hard. What did they do wrong? The Export-Import Bank is under fire, and it can possibly lose its charter. If you meet a political reporter who claims to have heard of the Export-Import Bank before this year, verify. Ask for records. This is a pretty obscure agency founded by FDR. It lends money and offers insurance to all forms of companies, large and small. It was uncontroversial until it became controversial. But you know, the weirdest part of this whole Export-Import Bank thing is It's not the import-export bank. I mean, I always hear the order of those two words as import-export. I'm an import-export. So I looked up, I went to the uh, California Yellow Pages, and I did find 16 companies that list themselves as export-import. But 190 companies list themselves as import-export. And I think of the most famous import-exporter of all, Art Vandelay. What are you doing here? Uh, We're meeting a friend of ours for lunch, works here in the building. Art Vandelay. Who was a creation of George Costanza on Seinfeld, and yeah, he said it in that order. Which company? I don't know. Uh, He's an importer. Importer. And exporter. He's an importer, exporter. Well, here to talk about none of the linguistics, but all of the actual issues is Rana Faruhar, who's assisting managing editor and a columnist at Time, and also CNN person. Hello, Rana. Hey, how are you? I'm well. So what I said, the whole 
if you meet someone who knew about this before this year, I said political reporter. I'm going to assume <laughs> that you knew the existence of this bank before it blew I up. I did, but yeah. I'm a big wonk. What right. can I say? <laughs> but even though you knew it existed, did you ever pay attention to anything it did? I really didn't. Yeah. I knew what it did, right. but you're right. I mean, it has really not been in the news until this year. This has been a very quietly yeah. uh, functioning source of finance for a lot of big companies in this country, uh, that do business in this country, I should say, and, and some smaller ones too. Now, they have made missteps, and they wouldn't deny that. I mean, there are some uh, scandals. Tell me about those if you can. Well, I don't know about scandals. There are sort of two views on the Export-Import Bank. The basic view, the critical view, uh, and this is the view of David Bratt, who is the um, Virginia right-winger who recently won out in the primaries over Cantor, is that this bank offers up unfair you know, even borderline illegal, at least in a constitutional sense, subsidies for large companies like, for example, Boeing. And, and it was interesting that after Cantor's defeat, that Boeing stock fell precipitously. You know, you always know that there are business impacts of elections, but that one was particularly stark. Yeah, it's one-to-one, yeah. Yeah, it was a one-day loss that wiped out the entire year's gains for that company. And the point is that, you know, uh, foreign buyers who are buying Boeing products can come into this bank and get really cut-rate loans. And a lot of people feel that that's unfair. Now, the counter-argument is that, you know, this is not just a, a financing source for big companies. It can help small companies get business from foreign buyers, too. We're living in a global economy. A lot of other countries offer up this kind of support. Uh, in fact, and, and I would agree with this point, that the U.S. is rare amongst rich, developed nations in that it doesn't have a really decided I- industrial policy in which we're doing this kind of thing on purpose. We kind of tend to do it haphazardly. Right. So we allow a bank to make calls every once in a while, as opposed to just having it be a matter of policy. Why even have the bank? Why not just have some central agency do it? And the scandals I was talking about, there was an employee who was taken out in handcuffs because he allegedly accepted cash payments in exchange for trying to help a Florida company obtain a U.S. government financing to export construction equipment to Latin America. Mm -hmm. He was kind of important there. And a couple other employees who were not as central to the uh, core mission are Mm -hmm. being brought up on bribery charges. But it's not the charges. It's the fundamental of what this bank does. And I would say that it is in keeping with the real doctrinaire or let's say consistent libertarian position Mm -hmm. to question this bank. Absolutely. Yet, 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 there's so much in government that would seem to be so much more egregious to the committed libertarian (laughs) than this bank. Right. Why is this the thing that's under fire? Oh, you know, I I think it's under fire because it's an easy target. You know, I mean, it's small potatoes in terms of entitlements or or subsidies compared to, say, you know, the biggest investment banks. But who wants to take those on, either amongst the left or the right, when they're giving so much money to so many candidates? You know, I think that that's just a much bigger and entrenched problem. The revolving door between Wall Street and Washington bothers me much more than the Exim Bank, but it's low-hanging fruit, and it's easy for people to make a point. Who's going to lose if the bank loses its charter? I don't think companies like Boeing are going to have you know, a, a huge sea change in the way um, their business runs based on this. I think it'll be more interesting to see, do you have mid-sized companies in the Rust Belt, in the Midwest, that were 
uh, able to bring in foreign business and that foreign lenders depended on this for financing. If you start to see that kind of business suffering, I think that that's going to be a bigger conversation that we need to have because, you know, the export market is tough right now, but the Obama administration had a goal to double exports within five years. This has been a big part of the American growth story, and if that comes under fire, that's that's a huge economic issue. Yeah, and I was hearing a story on uh, WMYC, the local radio station where you appear sometimes, and they yeah. were talking, just this pretty small-time guy who gets a decent rate of insurance because it's backed by the Export-Import Bank, and yeah, he says he could get private insurance. Mm-hmm. It will just cost him whatever it is, hundreds thousands of dollars more who does that help i guess yeah. the insurance company but it's not helping the little guy in this uh, case that's that's right actually and you know my colleague jonas sarah who uh, we do a show together on wnc has written a lot about this issue and again feels that this is kind of an unfair target for people that want to make a point about government subsidies there's a lot bigger bigger fish to fry in that category all right. Well, thank you very much. And you want to weigh in on the uh, Art Vandalay thing? I mean, do you usually hear export import or import export <laughs> in the non-bank <laughs> context? I'm going to go with export import you, actually. Really, you hear export import? I, I do. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Where do you hear that? I, I, I surveyed both coasts. <laughs> I don't know. I'm a wonk, like I said. You follow the bank is with the problem. Yeah. <laughs> Rana Faruhar is a columnist at Time and covers the global economy on CNN. Thank you, Rana. Thank you. The World Cup, we're all immersed. The beauty the pageantry, the artistry, the flopping around on the ground as if you've just been shot by a cannon. I don't know. Americans hate this. Everyone else in the world understands that it's a way to get an advantage. But how bad is it? It is said that the Americans flop less or not as well as their European and South American counterparts. Well, one man has counted the flop stats. He's Jeff Foster, Wall Street Journal sports editor, a member of the Sports Retort podcast board. Hello, Jeff. How are you? So what question were you asking and seeking to find an answer well, to? Well, we, we were hearing all the same complaints I think everyone's heard about the guys writhing on the ground, acting like they're injured or actually being injured. So we went after it, and I actually watched the first 32 games of the World Cup, two games for each team, and counted every time a player was on the ground in one form of despair or another. <laughs> Clutching a, a limb, you know, a knee. Usually their own. Usually yeah. their own. Yeah. Clutching their face. Yeah. And just added them up. So did you try to tease out when it was legit, like when they had a terrible injury or when they were just acting? I did. And obviously there's going to be some flaws in this because there's no way I can tell. I'm not, on, I'm not a trainer on the sideline. I can't tell how hurt these guys are. And, yeah. and obviously some of the injuries, you know, especially when players clang heads together, they look pretty bad. Yeah. I threw on everyone who was out for the World Cup or miss the next game. So okay. Josie Altador's injury against Ghana, where he clearly injured his hamstring, mm-hmm. he missed the next game. Because he, there's faking, but no one would yeah, take no, it to that degree. And, and also yeah. with the Altador injury, he wasn't even, there was no contact. Yeah. Now, I counted when the guy came back into the game. My big observation in the field of flop studies is when a guy clutches his face, he's faking. Like yes. when he clutches a yes. body part, the body part might hurt, but clutching the face is the just face. such an indication yeah. of a fake. There were a yeah. lot of face injuries, <laughs> not head injuries. Right. 
face injury. Well, great, because the thing will be he'll go down and it will be that he's saying that there's a knee injury, but the way he deals with that is to put his hands over his face. And from a strategy point of view, that yeah. sort of makes sense because, you know, one of the quickest ways to get a card, a yellow card or even a red card, is to hit someone in the face. So yeah. that those are the injuries they're obviously embellishing. What about presence of the stretcher? Did that comport with faking more than it comported with real injuries? About 50% of the time. So usually the guys who were really hurt were stretchered off. The nine I mentioned before, I think almost all of them were stretchered off. But then again, there was at least five guys who were stretchered off and then came right back yeah. into the game, usually within a minute. Yeah. And a couple of times the stretcher comes down and the guy doesn't want to get on it. That would mean faking. Usually, usually that means yeah. like, all right, I, I'm not that bad, you know, yeah. but yeah. he'll walk off with the trainers. The stretcher bearers will return yeah. and then he'll uh, go back in the game. So who were the biggest fakers or floppers and what teams were the biggest fakers? OK, and so I only did the first two games. OK. Brazil definitely went down the most, mm-hmm. 17 times in yeah. two games. And Neymar himself, the star of the Brazilian team, went down five times alone. It was almost every time they were fouled. They were acting as if they were injured. Uh, some other uh, big offenders were teams that were often winning yeah. and clearly needed to kill time. Chile comes to mind. Mm-hmm. I believe in against the game against Spain, they went down 11 times, which was the most in one game. I think it was an Ecuador game in group play where there four seconds in, two guys go down. Yeah, it was unbelievable. <laughs> it was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. <laughs> the, the announcers were almost laughing at it because it was just immediately, it was uh, Valencia, enter Valencia on Ecuador. Yeah. It's basically, game starts, the guy's on the ground. But there, the were, two guys, there were two Ecuadorians yeah. on the ground. I and, felt like if only one of them tried to sell it, they'd have a chance. But and, when two guys, it becomes common. And often you see the guy who commits the foul go down as if he was injured also. Why not? And That's you, what Luis Suarez yeah, did. Exactly. Yeah. Suarez did that when he, when he, when he bit, bit the Italian. No, when his teeth fell into the Italian. When his teeth fell into the be. Italian, he was acting on the ground. I, I don't even, I think he said face injury. I'm not even sure what he was going with there. That was egregious. <laughs> this is sort of a countermeasure to maybe prevent a yellow card. Like, oh, I got hurt too. Yeah. I saw that a lot. Also. By the way, even though, what's his name? Chiolini, the Italian guy yeah. who got bit. He didn't need to go down either. Like, it must have been weird and shocking to be bit. But Vander Holyfield stayed up. Yeah, that's true. I think he used a, a great excuse to go down for that one. Because that was comparatively sort of legitimate yeah. being bitten. But that didn't work. There was no penalty on that Right. Play. It doesn't always work. Yeah. And, and often you would see a quick yellow card and the guy's right back on his feet. Mm-hmm. So when they know they've done their job, they got the yellow card, you don't see a guy writhing on the ground. What's the point? Has the United States learned from their coach, Klinsman? Have they gotten any better flopping? Because the criticism was they don't flop good enough, they don't sell it enough, they don't do it enough. I think they do. I mean, if you look at the, the data, they're right in the middle of the pack, um, towards the top even. And if you watch rewatch the end of the Portugal game, they scored around the 80th minute, and all of a sudden they had about three injuries. Or yeah. Injuries. Yeah. I'm doing the air quotes here. Have you come to an either ethical or moral judgment about flopping in soccer? I, I have no problem with it. And a lot of the letters I've gotten, people think I'm anti, but I'm not. It's an, a legitimate strategy. And I, if I was a coach, I would encourage my players to do it too. They can give a yellow card for yeah. flopping, for diving, and they don't do it very often. You seldom see it. I haven't seen it once in this World Cup. Until right. they start you know, building that deterrent into the game, then why not do it? It yeah. helps your team. Jeff Foster, Wall Street Journal editor, floppometrician. Thanks right, a lot, Jeff. Thank you. And now the spiel. 
So today, the Supreme Court ruled 5-4, to four, that's five Catholics to one Catholic plus Sonia Sotomayor's three Jewish colleagues. They voted to allow businesses like the Hobby Lobby to withhold contraception, not cover contraception of their employees that they provide health care with. Let's take a step back and consider this decision. Okay, I've taken a step back. You know what? It's still not far enough. We need more perspective. All right, here I am, a step and a half back. Now, hold on. I'm just going to do the rest of this, as we say, on mic in the biz. But you know what I'm going for here. Because when I decided to take a step back, I thought all about the aspects of this case, this specific case, and how it was decided. Five male Catholics thought Hobby Lobby and other employers should be allowed to opt out of the provisions of the Affordable Care Act that a company has grave religious issues with. Now, I mentioned the Catholics and the men because the Catholic Church still maintains that contraception is inherently evil. It's the only major Christian church that believes that. In fact, the church sticks to its anti-contraception stance, at least according to some scholars, in part because they feel that if the church reversed the stance, quote, we should have to concede, frankly, that the Holy Spirit had been on the side of the Protestant churches in 1930. And that quote was said by Carol Wojtyla, who would later become Pope John Paul II. But I'm not here to point that out. I'm not here to point out that what's called birth control is actually used by women medically to regulate their periods. No, that's the one step back. The step and a half back is this. It is insane that in America, we rely on private companies to provide for health care of their employees. Oh, I know why we do it. It's no one's fault that we do it. After World War II, there were wage controls and businesses couldn't compete by paying employees more. So someone, person's name is actually literally lost to history, but a government official declared fringe benefits wouldn't be counted as wages. So businesses were eager to lure employees and they provided them health care, which was really cheap back then. It wasn't that big of a problem, but it snowballed and cut you today. And if you work for Conestoga Wood, you get no birth control pills. But if your cabinet making firm is run by a Jew or a Mormon or a member of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, you're covered. This is crazy. Hey, George, I see that your goiter is in remission. Can you explain? Sure. I work over at the bowling alley, and the bowling alley paid to cure my goiter. But Steve, why has the eczema spread over half your body? Uh, because I work at the foundry, and the foundry decided not to pay for more than two eczema treatments. Cancer? Don't worry. Dairy Queen pays for cancer. Schizophrenia? Hamburger Hamlet decided not to foot the bill for that one. Hey, sorry, should have worked for a different purveyor of round meat patties if you wanted that cured. So what's the solution to this? I don't know. Maybe on this narrow issue, the solution is every other healthcare system in the world. The question of if businesses should be made to compromise their religious beliefs or if businesses even have religious beliefs only comes up because we've subcontracted with businesses to provide a societal benefit that businesses should not be in the business of providing. What if we couldn't go to war because the draft ran through General Motors and IBM and their owners turned out to be pacifists or just stockholders who didn't want employees going to war? What if we had to teach poultry science in the schools because public education was provided by companies to the children of their employees. You know that Popeyes and Purdue would be pushing that chicken teaching agenda. Keep instructing that chicken. So is there a solution? No, not really. Just a spiel. But if I didn't get that off my chest, it could have stayed there, ultimately requiring an MRI, which is allowed by Slate, but frowned upon if I worked at the muffler shop. 
And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, producer of Slate Podcasts, has elected for pewter-level coverage, which is one step below our bronze plan, but has proven very effective if the leeches are duly motivated. Andy Bowers is both the executive producer of Slate Podcasts and an out-of-network provider. You can subscribe on iTunes and give us a review. Many reviews are up. Almost all are kind. There's one or two that aren't. I think in the future days I'm going to talk about them, because what is it they say? The evil that men do lives after them. The good is oft interred with their bones. I always wondered, as a little kid who memorized Shakespeare, what's what's that part about turds? Anyway, you could sign up for our email at slate.com slash gist email. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist email the gist at slate.com the gist where we can't drop you from our subscriber list for any previously existing downloadable condition. And thanks for listening. 